Turn with you, would please, to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. We're not going to read it, uh, but I just want you to notice something about it. You may be aware that beginning on the Feast of Trumpets, and that's Tishri 1, coming up very soon, the Levitical singers at the temple in ancient Israel would ascend 15 steps, one for each um, of the 15 days uh, leading up to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And on the first day of the first step, they would sing Psalm 120. And if you look at your Bible, you will see in most Bibles, it will say a Psalm of Ascent or a Psalm of Degree in the King James Version in mine. That's because in each on each of the days leading up, they would sing uh, the next one. On the uh, second of Tishri, they would sing Psalm 121 and so forth, all the way up to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was on the 15th day. They would sing um, Psalm 134 on that particular day. The Jewish Mishnah notes in the connection uh, in the connection with the 15 steps of the temple and the 15 Psalms of Ascent, although some writers may suggest other usages about that. Well, so what? What's that got to do with us today in leading up to this particular season? Well, if you would please turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. And I want to... Um, Thank Mr. Frank, his gave us just gave us the split sermon on uh, Psalm two. He, he and I did not coordinate today, so it's rather interesting what we're talking about. Psalm one thirty three. Let's read that. Behold, look, see something. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Okay, behold, what are we going to see when we? Look at that. What's it going to be? Verse 2 is the answer. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. So when we look, we're supposed to see some these things in that. Why? Why are these things like that? For there... The Eternal commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Brethren dwelling as one are like those things. And for a reason, for that reason that we just read. Sounds beautiful poetic language, isn't it? These psalms are so beautiful, you could just kind of get lost in the poetry. How nice that is to hear that. Well... Or did God actually co- command the blessing of eternal life on the mountains of Zion? Is that in the Bible? Did that actually occur? Well, it actually did happen on an occasion in biblical history. So today, let's look at Psalm 133. It's just three verses, but look at it in some detail because it contains important information for the church today. These three verses are dense with meaning. What do these three things have to do with unity and with us today and with eternal life? Point number one, 
Let's begin by looking at the scriptures that concern the anointing of the high priest and just do a quick review of the role of the Levitical high priest and Christ as our high priest. The Levitical high priest, the Aaronic high priest, pictured our high priest, Jesus Christ, which has a lot to do with us, and we'll see some about that today. But we're going to begin with verse 2 of Psalm 133 and come back to the first verse in a little while. Psalm 133, verse 2. It is like the precious oil upon the head. Well, let's look at that just a little bit. We have an account of the anointing of Aaron in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. This is the actual description of what happened in that occasion. Exodus 29, 5 through 7 is a statute specifying the anointing of the high priest. But Leviticus 8 describes Moses actually carrying out the event. Verse 10, And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. They were told how to make it. They had like a whole great big hen or two of these things, of this oil that they had. Verse 11, And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels both the laver and the foot, to sanctify them. So the anointing process sanctified them, set them apart for something very special. Verse 12, And he poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. That's what we just read about in Psalm 133. You can look it up later, but in Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 through 25, gives the formula for the fragrant oil of myrrh and calamus and cinnamon mixed with olive oil. You can, I've never smelled that before. I would, wouldn't make it because it was special for the priest and for anointing. Um, wouldn't want to risk the sin of presumption, but I imagine that it was a wonderful fragrance, uh, very aromatic. The other Levitical priests were anointed with only a few drops, but Aaron, the high priest, had the holy oil poured out on him copiously. I just, you know, when you read Psalm 133 or maybe Leviticus 8, I have this picture in my mind of maybe a big horn of oil. I'd like to think it happened this way. And, and uh, Moses would take this thing full of oil, and then he pours it out, just dumps it, pours it out all over his head, it runs down his head and down his beard and all the, down the garments, down the skirt. He's covered with it. And can you imagine then the fragrance that comes up with that? Uh, to me, it's just a beautiful thought to try to imagine that. He was a type of our high priest, Christ, who has God's spirit without measure. Now, the Levites, they got some, a little bit, but the high priest... He was drenched with it. He was covered with it. Psalm 133, verse 2. Running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> the Aaronic high priest is important to us today because his office prefigures Christ's role as the true high priest. And our roles as priests 
in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is our high priest, but not of Levi and not of Aaron. He was of Judah, not of Levi. Verse 19 of Hebrews 6, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Look down in verse 14 through 17. But it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, life forevermore. Hmm. For he testifies, you are, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. First Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. First Peter, chapter 2, and verses 9 and 10. God's people are a royal priesthood. Royal, as of Judah, a priesthood like Levi, but not of Levi, of a higher and prior priesthood. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart, anointed with something, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So here we have our priestly order, the, the priesthood, but of the order of Melchizedek. If you'd like to read a little more about that, you can see the September-October 2018 Living Church News, the order of Melchizedek, September-October 2018. So just to summarize, Point number one, we've just been through. As we heard in the first message this morning, Christos means anointed, the anointed one. Messiah or Mosaic in Hebrew means the anointed one, someone who has been anointed. God anoints us with his spirit as well. You are his anointed people, but he's given you an earnest, a down payment of that spirit. Christ, the high priest, however, had the spirit of God, has it, and as a man, had it without measure, as if he had been drenched with it. The church's royal priesthood is given that spirit in this age upon repentance, baptism, and the laying out of hands by one of God's ministers, but not like our high priest. As a type of our high priest, Aaron had it poured out so copiously that it ran down his head, down his beard, even down the edge of his garments. He was covered with it. Point number two, verse three of Psalm 33 reads, It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. The dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Well, how is it like that and what does that mean? 
Well, Mount Hermon, according to the commentaries, is located about 40 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and it's nowhere near Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is Jerusalem, of course, sits, the old Jerusalem sits on the uh, Mount Moriah, which is the three low hills of Mount Moriah. Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet in elevation above sea level, so high that it's often snow-capped. And I don't know if you've, well, I'm sure you've seen the wind blowing up mountains. What happens as it goes up and gets it higher and higher? Well, it expands and condenses and turns into clouds. Often the top of clouds are covered with cloud, the top of mountains, rather, are covered with clouds or snow-capped because it's cold up there. And frequently, Mount Hermon, at least according to the commentaries, it would be drenched with a heavy dew and a lot of rain, and it would run down the mountain in streams and rivulets, kind of like the oil running down Aaron's head. That was that was the description. Psalm 133 presents the copious dew of a great mountain, Hermon, anointing a smaller mountain, Zion. Christ is the anointed one of the Father. Mountains symbolize governments in the Bible. You know, in many cases, we've got Mount Esau, the Mount of Edom, so forth. Many times we hear that. It's not referring to necessarily a physical mountain. It refers to a government in the mountain. Sometimes even physical mountains are metaphorical for governments in the Bible. At Mount Zion will be the headquarters of the government of God, the holy mountain of God. That's you, the anointed ones. For more about mountains, you might look at the November, December 2010 Living Church News as a tale of two mountains. It gives more on that subject. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. It is Christ, our high priest, who has God's spirit without measure, who anoints us with that same spirit, enabling us to be resurrected to immortality. It is that spirit. Without that, we cannot be made holy. We cannot be resurrected to immortality. But we will have immortal bodies like his because of that spirit. And to enter the holy mountain of God, then, which is headquartered in Jerusalem, to do that, he gives us eternal life. It is made possible by the Spirit that dwells in us. Verse 9 of Romans 8, You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. That's the promise of eternal life, life forevermore. Let's summarize point number two. God anoints his holy mountain, his government, in Jerusalem with the same spirit that Christ has without measure. 
we should all greatly desire to be filled with it because one day the prophecy will be fulfilled by God's church. That is in Isaiah 11, 4. I'll just read it. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Guess who's going to fill it up? His anointed ones, you, one bucket at a time. That's going to be your job as priests. Number three, point number three. Psalm 133, verse three reads, it is like the dew of Hermon descending on the mount, upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord, the eternal, commanded the blessing life forevermore. Well, did that happen? Did that, in fact, happen sometime? Can you, do you know of a spot in your Bible that you could identify? Or was David just kind of giving a pleasant picture, a pleasant metaphor or something? Let's investigate a bit. The word commanded here, sava, to command or set in order, to place or set in order. So he's talking about he commanded or he set something in order. He placed it in order by commanding it. Turn to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 22, in verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> A great event took place where Jerusalem is now, but it took place long ago before Jerusalem was a city, and it has a great effect on humanity, has had it, and will have an even greater effect in the future. And it has to do with the history of the Temple Mount. It was known as Mount Moriah in ancient times. Moriah consists, as I said before, the three low hills upon which Jerusalem is now built. So let's do a brief Bible study on this thing of Mount Moriah. Verse 22, um, chapter, uh, verse 1 of uh, chapter 22 of Genesis. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So as Moriah's got three mountains, he says he's going to say that one. Do it on that particular one. Now turn to First Chronicles chapter 21, verses 18, and then 26 and 27. We'll have to skip through this. You can read the whole chapter later on if you'd like. It's very interesting. First Chronicles, verse 21. The threshing floor of Ornan, a threshing floor, and it's located just north of the old city of Jerusalem. That area just north is where the, it's believed to be where the uh, Temple Mount is now. That's what that's called. David had numbered Israel in this account against God's command, and then God had sent a plague upon them. I think like 70,000 people had died. I mean, a huge number of deaths. Verse 18. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. He was trying to stop this plague. Verse 26. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he 
returned his sword to his sheath. Second Chronicles 3, 1, maybe just a few pages over in your Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Moriah, the threshing floor of Ornan, that's what we think of as modern Jerusalem, the center right there. And some of us have been up onto the area of that threshing floor. It's quite a feeling to be there. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Turn to Genesis 17, verses 1 through 10. We'll skip a couple through here, beginning in verse 1. Promises can be conditional and unconditional. Mr. Armstrong taught that it's very important to understand that in terms of interpreting the covenants. When a condition is met, then God expands the promise, and then it becomes unconditional. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Biblical principle. whole sermon can be preached on that. So here we'll see a conditional promise. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, and the eternal, the Lord, the eternal, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. All right, there's a condition. You've got to do that. Verse 2, and here comes a promise. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No more shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be, uh, shall be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. Verse 10, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. I go to Genesis 22. We're going to go through this in some detail, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go verses 1 through 14 and then come back to that, to verse 15, in a little bit. I've already read verses um, 1 and 2. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt or try Abraham and said to him, Behold, Abraham, here I am. He said, Take now your son Isaac, whom you love, and get you to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a bird offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Verse 3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two young men with him, took two young of his young men with him, and Isaac his son and clave the wood of the bird offering, and rose up and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide you you here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, I know most of you who have been in the church a long time remember don't just read over this verse and notice what it says. He was supposed to go up on the mountain and sacrifice and burn as a burnt offering. But look what he said. I will go yonder and worship and come 
we will come again to you. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Hmm. Why did he say that, do you think? He seemed to think that Isaac is going to survive this experience. Why would he think that? Because he had just told God he was going to do what he said. Hmm. Let's keep reading. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they both went up together. Who else do you know took the wood of his offering up that mountain? The anointed one, Jesus Christ, did that. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. We're going to see in a moment, he did not sacrifice a lamb. The lamb he was to provide would come centuries later. He did provide a lamb. Verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar of the wood. Who else do you know was bound to an altar? Well, <laughs> a sacrificial piece of wood, Jesus Christ. He was bound by being nailed to it. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out, unto him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I've often wondered if it was, here I am. He called out to him. And he said, lay not your hand on the lad, neither do you anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up his eyes, lifted up his eyes, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, because it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen or provided. We shall see shortly what was to be provided and how. Well, how did he know? How did he know the outcome of that? He clearly did know, but why? Just look over in Genesis 21, 12, just perhaps right across the page in your Bible. There's the answer. A few verses prior. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lead or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's a promise. It is unconditional. He didn't give a condition to that. He had already fulfilled that. In Isaac your seed, the promise are going to be promises of all of the things that you are going to have, multiple nations, all of those things are going to pass through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. 
Here the Apostle Paul explains the meaning of these events. If you didn't know what happened there, it's been in your Bible all along. It's explained in the New Testament right here. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. That's it. Hold your place there. We're going to come back in, in just a moment. If Isaac died, the promises couldn't be fulfilled. Why? Well, he was a lad. He was a fairly young boy. Well, we don't know his exact age, but we do know that he had no children at that time. So Abraham believed God. He had faith about the promises. God had made a promise to him. In Isaac shall your seed be called. Abraham was convinced persuaded that God could and would do what he said he would do. It was not blind faith. And the world, and you can read the commentaries in the world, a lot of times they'll say, oh, Abraham just has such faith. It was blind faith. That was what, no, that was not. He knew the outcome of it because he believed what God had already told him. So Abraham knew that what he was being asked to do would not result in the death of Isaac. Unless God couldn't or wouldn't do what he said, Isaac's going to be spared somehow, either spared, not killed, or resurrected one way or the other, so that he could live to fulfill God's unconditional promise, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Paul said that in a sense Isaac died and was resurrected to his father Abraham as the true type of Christ that he was. Now, verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which also he received him in a figurative sense. There's the explanation. It's been there all along. Sometimes we simply have to do what God says. You may not understand it. You may not get it completely. But we simply obey and do what he says. And he under, we understand that he will work things out. If you're fairly new in the church, yeah, you've been through that lately, haven't you? Maybe with your Sabbath observance, maybe with tithing. Well, I'm going to obey, and God says he's going to work it out. Many other things you've been tested on, and you trusted him. He came through, didn't he? Yes, he does. He works things out. But in this case, for Abraham, his obedience was not blind. He had good reason for what he did. He believed God, and he acted upon his belief. We do that every time we keep the Sabbath. You know, did you go outside and sniff around and smells like the Sabbath today, or it looks like the Sabbath today, or it sounds like the Sabbath today? No. God tells you this time is holy, and we believe him, and we act on it. We cease our labors, and we come together. And assemble and worship him. Well, his, um, Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness as our is. He displayed an active, living faith. Abraham acted because of his faith. His faith led to works. It led to, for him to do something. Abraham, in this experience, 
was conquered by God, as Mr. Dr. Meredith used to like to say. I wonder if perhaps that's why God said, now I know, now I know that you're going to do all that I say. Our actions based on living faith change us. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Romans chapter 4, and verses 18 through 22. I'm kind of breaking into the sentence here. The Apostle Paul tells us, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. Speaking here of Abraham. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was a hundred years old, dead in terms of procreating, um, and the deadness of Sarah's womb for the same reason. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God, the promise that he had made that we just read, in Isaac shall your seed be called, had not wavered through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he being God, had promised, he was able to perform. And that had to be the life of Isaac. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, sometimes you'll read a definition of faith. You know, get out and go online sometime and dictionary, look up a definition of faith. And you'll see belief without evidence. No. No. That is an atheist definition of faith. The reason why they define it that way is because it lends to their argument against God. Biblically, faith is informed belief. Your faith is informed. Abraham's faith was informed. He didn't, it didn't, his obedience just didn't suddenly appear. He had a relationship with this powerful being, the eternal, and his choice to obey was based on experience. Just think of a few things. Sarah's conception. That was a, mirac- a miraculous conception. Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow. You saw that. He was called the friend of God. He knew this eternal. He had a personal relationship with Almighty God. So he knew that God had the ability and the will to accomplish what he said. What did Abraham believe? He believed that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Got it made. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. This tells us why God commanded Abraham to do such a thing. There's a reason for God's plan and a reason for Abraham as well. Now, all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. This is when this says ends here, the world is telos. It doesn't mean the termination. It means the final outcomes, the ends in the sense of final outcomes. That's what the, the word means there. 
Turn to Galatians chapter 3 in verses 7 through 9. Galatians chapter 3 in verses 7 through 9. God had Abraham acting out something that would be fulfilled centuries later. And this was the unconditional beginning of the covenant and the operation of the plan of salvation. So that his, this historical account in the Old Testament is fulfilled, just filled with meaning for all of us. Therefore, verse 7, therefore we therefore know that only those things that are of faith, those only those who are of faith are of the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. There it was. That's verse um, 12. We'll read that in just a moment. Genesis 12. We'll read that in a moment. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now turn over to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. This is kind of the beginning of it all. Now the Eternal had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And if you do, condition, I will make you a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everyone, a blessing for the entire earth. Now, Genesis chapter 22, and we're going back to verse 15. I stopped there before. Let's go back to Genesis 22. In this great event, the promises became unconditional, and God's plan was implemented. Eternal life, life forevermore, was ensured. We left off earlier, as I said, at verse 14. Now, notice God says, because you have done this thing. Because. Something has been done. The promises became unconditional here. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and as the sand of the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's the promise fulfilled of Genesis 12, unconditionally, because you have obeyed my voice. More on this subject and more detail in the January-February 2009 Living Church News, Abraham, Isaac, and Faith. Summarize number three. So we see that the promises of the kingdom of God and eternal life in it became unconditional at Mount Moriah because of the faithfulness of Abraham. So Psalm 133 rightly reads, For there the eternal commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now let's go back, 
quickly to Psalm 133 in verse 1. We're looping back and picking up that verse 1. You know, we have unity, the unity of God's spirit now, but we will have the unity of God's family in the future in God's holy mountain. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, a few years back, we took a long trip for the fall holy days and um, the feast. It was, I forget how many, it was five, six years ago, I guess. And it kind of had one of these mission creep things. Um, you know, we started adding on more and more to it because there were some needs. We were glad to do it. We went to Auckland, New Zealand first for the Sabbath. And that congregation there is about three-quarters Pacific Islander, if you've ever been there to see us. Wonderful group of people, mostly from Vanuatu and Tonga, some Maori there. We're also there for trumpets. And then on to Melbourne, Australia for Sabbath and Brisbane for atonement. Then up to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for Sabbath. And half first half of the feast was in Malacca. And then the second half of the feast was in Baikio, Philippines. That, including the Sabbath services and the Holy Days, I think there were ten sermons, four sermonettes, in four countries and six churches. A big trip. It was a long trip. We loved it. It was fantastic. We, every minute of it. In all of them, the brethren expressed love and support and appreciation for the work and expressed their love and support and unity with you. You have no idea how important you are to them. You just have to go there to see. All over the world, when you go there, you walk into these halls, people look different, they dress different. You've heard me say this before, I think. Everything about them is different. They speak differently. But when you go there, you know you're with God's people. There's a unity. The unity of the Spirit is there. You just sense it when you walk in the door. I hope you'll have a chance to do that sometime. But when you do, please remember to kind of keep your antenna up and remember the feeling when you first walk in. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26 through 29. Galatians 3, we read 7 through 9 earlier. We're just going to skip down now. You always know where you are, no matter where you are in the world, when you're with God's people. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. And I might add, Tongan, Vanuatu, Aussie, Kiwi, Maori, Malay, Tamil, Anglo-Chinese, African, Filipino, all of which are in God's church that I saw on that trip. All of them were there. Continuing in verse 28, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and a Heirs according to the promise, all spiritual Israel, all. When you go there, you really understand it as you travel around the world. To summarize point number four, all the peoples of the world are offered life forevermore as the seed of Abraham. The Israel of God is composed of all peoples. We are all joint heirs together. We have unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. Ephesians 4, 
1 through 6. Therefore, the prison, therefore, as the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you all to walk worthy of the calling in which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. God bears with us in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The spirit, the earnest that has been put in you by he who had it without measure. We should all strive to understand one another, even as we realize that it may not be possible to really understand the life experiences in our society of some that have, been, have had particularly difficult time for many generations, as it is for some of our brethren. Sometimes just being aware that we don't understand completely helps. But while we have different perspectives, it's most important that we keep in view the most important perspective, God's perspective, eyes and ears to see and hear. No matter what your perspective, God expects you to keep his perspective in view always. And that resolves so much. It resolves so much, brethren. Why say these things today? Well, the time has come when there is more divisions and tensions in the world, we say ethnos against ethnos, the forces of division and conflict are raging around the world now, and even in our own country. We believe that much worse trials than the ones we are seeing now are coming, and perhaps sooner. We need that unity. We need to keep God's vision in sight. These things may be coming sooner than we think. We are blessed with proven leaders, who have been through all kinds of trials, doctrinal trials, apostates, organizational trials throughout. Uh, those of us that have been in the church for a number of decades have been to quite a few rodeos. And our leadership have been proven in these regards, and they've proven it for decades. Our leaders are conservative doctrinally, and the truth will be maintained and thought while they are on the job. Evangelist Gerald Weston, Richard Ames, Douglas Winnell, Stuart Wachowicz, Mario Hernandez are all conservative doctrinally and committed to the truth and to the work. Let's commit ourselves to do as Paul instructed us to do, to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So now let's look again at the unity of the spirit and see where it leads and why Psalm 33 is written, Psalm 133 is written as it is. This is, I'll do it from the King James Version. Behold, how good and how pleasant, pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down the skirt of his garment. It's like the dew of Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Eternal commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 